please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Uh, this morning we'll be finishing Jonah, the book of Jonah. We'll be in chapter 4. Uh, if you're following along in the Pew Bibles, uh, that's on page 775. Uh, Beloved people of God, this is God's holy, infallible, and abiding word. Uh, Give your full attention to it. Uh, Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a a worm uh, that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant. For which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, uh, thanks to many generous people... Uh, At five weeks old, my son has accumulated a lot of books. Uh, He already broke Marie Kondo's rule for books. Uh, uh, Do you guys know who Marie Kondo is? Uh, She has a show on Netflix. Her whole thing is about tidying up. She's an expert at it, supposedly. Uh, She turns slobs into neat freaks. Uh, and one of her rules for, stay, uh, for st- staying tidy is to not have more than 30 books. Uh, as reform folks, that sounds like a terrible rule. Evil, evil. evil. Um, but anyway, 
One of the books Ames got was a children's book on Jonah. He actually got two copies. Um, I love it uh, because Jonah is such a great story. Uh, children should learn this story early on. Uh, but here's the thing. Chapter 4 is missing in my son's book. Is that crazy? It's just not there. The story ends with chapter 3. Why is that? What's going on there? I think it's because if you're trying to paint Jonah as a hero, it makes sense that you end the story at chapter 3. Jonah preaches and everyone, including the cows, repents. The end. Happy story. Let's all go home. Uh, But the book of Jonah is much more complex than that, right? And if we miss chapter 4, we'll miss the whole thing. And here's what I want us to grasp or hold on to this morning. Uh, We need to see that that we need grace just as much as our enemies. We need grace just as much as our enemies. And we'll look at the text in in two subheadings. One is absurd anger, and two, plenteous pity. Absurd anger and plenteous pity. And so the first thing I want us to see is how absurd Jonah's anger really is. Uh, Look at the first thing the narrator says about Jonah in chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Uh, That's kind of a soft translation to me. Uh, Because it's not just Jonah is exceedingly displeased, like he's really annoyed or something. At this point, Jonah is livid. He's seething with anger. He can't stand what God just did for Nineveh. Uh, Verse 1 can be translated like this. Uh, But to Jonah, it was an evil thing, a big evil. He thinks what God has just done is a big evil. There's a... There's been a few big things in the book so far, uh, and they're a big deal whenever they show up. Uh, God forgiving Nineveh is a big deal to Jonah. Uh, But Jonah has known that God is gracious all along. It's the reason why he ran in the first place. He says, this is why I was in a hurry to go to Tarshish. He knows what kind of God the Lord Yahweh is. And so Jonah rehearses one of the most famous statements about God in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's kind of um, the John 3.16 in the Old Testament. And it's actually the name that the Lord, Yahweh, revealed to Moses. Uh, it's from Exodus 34. I want to read that real quick. The Lord, Yahweh, descended in in the cloud and stood with him there, Moses, and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so here's the irony with all of this. Um, Jonah experienced this grace that he's rehearsing for himself. I mean, think about where he was, he, he was just before this. He was in the belly of this stinky fish on the brink of death. And by God's grace, he was delivered. Right? So he knows this God's grace personally. And Jonah is also an Israelite. Israel's entire history is predicated on grace. Uh, 
what Jonah rehearses comes in the aftermath of the golden calf incident. His own people rebelled at the very mountain of God, yet the Lord lavished His grace upon them. Jonah knows this. But why is Jonah so angry then? Is it really because God shows grace? No. He's angry that God would show grace to people that he despises. People he thought would never or should never receive grace. This kind of grace is a scandal to him. I mean, but it shouldn't be. This is the way that God acts with people. Listen to Jeremiah 18. If that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended, it, intended to do to it. Well, let me ask you this. How absurd is Jonah being right now? Very. Uh, let me tell you, sin and pride makes us all crazy. Jonah can't see how irrational he's being. Lord, you forgave these people? You know, just end me now. How can I live like this? I'd rather die than live. Or in the words of my son, wah, wah, right? Jonah is sulking like a little kid who can't have his way. I mean, do you know what that's called? That's called immaturity. That's called immaturity. And it's really the opposite of Paul's attitude in Philippians. Uh, Listen to what Paul famously said in chapter 1. And you all know it. Uh, Maybe you've seen it uh, written in some athlete's shoes. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 See, that's not someone who's irrationally sulking. That's someone who's mature and humble in the faith. Far from how Jonah is being right now. And by the way, if... Uh, some of you might be wondering what I'll be preaching next, because we're at the end of Jonah. Uh, I'll be preaching on Philippians, and I'm excited to uh, be preaching on Philippians. Um, anyways, I think this, this whole thing tells us something. That intellectual knowledge, uh, just knowledge of theology, knowledge about God, doesn't equal to maturity. You get that? Knowing things about God doesn't equal to maturity. I think many of us think that, especially in the Reformed camp, but that's not true. Just because we know facts about God doesn't mean we're all that mature. The real question is whether that knowledge about God changes us. Does it humble us? Does Does it change the way that we treat other people? How does God respond to Jonah's anger? Uh, Notice first what he doesn't do. God is not quick to lay it on him. I don't know about you. It's actually something I've been learning about myself. I'm a very impatient person. I mean, it's amazing how a tiny little person can remind you of that. And maybe you're like me. Uh, You would be quick to get mad at Jonah at this point. Why are you being so stubborn, Jonah? You ungrateful little prophet. But that's not the way God is, is he? 
Uh, Jonah just finished confessing it. The Lord is slow to anger. And so it's no surprise that God gently asked Jonah, Do you do well? Do you do good to be angry? Is it good for you to be this mad? Is your anger reasonable, Jonah? We're meant to wrestle with that question. Is it good for Jonah to be angry? The, the obvious answer is no. Jonah's anger is absolutely absurd. It's a joke, really. But the joke is on us if we fail to see that. This irrational anger that Jonah has. What's even more funny is the way that Jonah reacts to God at this point. Let's just say Jonah doesn't meet God's patience with humility. Because what does Jonah do? Uh, Jonah gives God the silent treatment. He straight up ignores God. What audacity, right? (laughs) That's crazy. Ignoring the God of the universe. God says, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah says, nothing. But I wonder if you can relate to Jonah. I bet some of you are good at this when you're really mad, especially when you're mad at your spouse, your children. I know I can be this way. It's kind of my thing when I'm too angry. I get all closed up like a clam. I just ask my wife, She knows I'm pretty good at the silent treatment when I'm mad. Uh, The thing is, I know how much it annoys her, how much it hurts her, and I do it anyway. And that's what anger, that's what sin does to us. It makes us irrational. It makes us crazy. But not only does Jonah ignore God, he actually walks away from God. You see that? Now that's taking it to another level. If I walk away from my wife, boy, I will be in mad trouble. Uh, Jonah makes his way outside of Nineveh. And what does he do? He builds a booth for himself. I mean, I guess that makes sense. It's hot outside, so some shelter would be good. Uh, I want us to camp just for a good second here, because I think there's some interesting stuff going on in the passage. Uh, Because look... Booth is such a loaded word in the Bible. It's freighted with meaning. I think of the Feast of Booths. Do you? (laughs) That's what I think of when I hear the word booth. Uh, Some of your translations might say the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? The same thing. The Feast of Booths. Uh, It's one of the three major feasts in Israel. Uh, We can spend a lot of time on this, but... There's just one, one thing I want to point out. And so let me quickly read from Deuteronomy 16, 13 to 14. Uh, just listen uh, to the connection. Hopefully uh, you can see the connection I'm trying to make. Deuteronomy 16. You shall keep the feast of booths seven days when you have gathered in the, uh, in the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice... In your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your, who are within your towns. Well, did you catch that? During the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews were commanded to welcome and rejoice with the sojourners, 
the Gentiles, people from among the nation in Israel's midst, they were to rejoice with them. Why? Because it's meant to be a pointer of what's to come, that God is gathering Jew and Gentile into one house. Yahweh is not just the God of the Jews, but also the God of the nations. And this feast is a reminder of that. But what is Jonah doing here? Instead of welcoming the sojourners, the Gentiles, the outsiders, and rejoicing with them, Jonah is indignant with them. In fact, he set up shop outside of the city just waiting, waiting and wishing for God to destroy them. This is the complete opposite of Abraham. Uh, remember when God wanted to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? What did Abraham do? Abraham pleaded for the people in the city. He didn't just stand back and wait for fire and brimstone to come down. He pleaded for them. Complete opposite of Jonah. Uh, Before we give Jonah a hard time, though, I think we have to give a hard look at ourselves. Are we more like Abraham? Do we plead for our city, for our neighbors, for our enemies? Or do we see them more like Jonah? In verses 6 through 11, the Lord performs a type of living parable about pity, uh, which brings us to our last point, uh, plenteous pity. Uh, Since Jonah still doesn't get it, uh, God prepares and sends a plant to cover his head. Uh, Now, you might be wondering at this point why God sends a plant to cover Jonah's head uh, to give him shade when Jonah already made a booth for shade, right? And the simple answer is that traditionally, the booth Jews made had no roof. Kind of a weird type type of booth, right? But it had no roof. Uh, It's an an incomplete protection from the blazing sun. And so Jonah's head would have been vulnerable uh, right here. I mean, you can just imagine how hot Jonah's head would have been, just baking away at the raw sun, right? But this plant brought great relief to Jonah. Uh, The ESV says the plant saved him from his discomfort. But in the Hebrew, it's actually closer to what we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer earlier. Uh, Deliver us from evil. Uh, Here it says, to deliver him from his evil. And really, it's a mini picture of salvation. Uh, To be delivered and liberated from uh, from what's evil. Even uh, when that evil is from ourselves. I think uh, that's why what comes next... Uh, doesn't come as a surprise. Jonah, this is why Jonah is elated. He is beside himself. Uh, Literally, the text says in in the end of verse 6, so Jonah rejoiced over the the plant with a big joy. Again, we should pay attention when something is big in the book of Jonah. Uh, This time, something, uh, what's big is actually good to Jonah. Uh, The plant 
is huge in his world. He sees it as something very important. It's important that we see this, right? Because the first, for the first time, something is, is good in Jonah's world and is big to him. Because all along, Jonah has been a big grump, right? From the beginning of the book until now, Jonah has been extremely unhappy. But now, for the first time, Jonah is extremely happy. He's overwhelmingly happy. His joy is big. You know what Jonah is experiencing? He's experiencing compassion and pity. For the first time, he cares about something more than himself. He has great compassion for this plant. I mean, don't you sense how fickle Jonah is right here? He's super mad one moment. He's super happy the next moment. I wonder if you can identify with him. Because I wonder how many of us are like that. We're so easily tossed to and fro by the waves of our circumstances. One thing comes, when that thing doesn't go our way, we're really, really down. When another thing comes, it goes our way, we're really, really happy. And so you know what happens next. Uh, Jonah is really mad again. Because what does God do? God appoints a worm the next day to attack the plant. A worm, this little thing, the enemies of plants, right? And this worm goes to town on this plant. It eats and eats until the plant dries up. And it's really the first step to breaking down Jonah's joy. Something that small can take it all away. And by the way, uh, did you notice the booth which Jonah built with his own hands didn't give him any joy? Right? It wasn't until God provided this plant that Jonah becomes really happy. Do you know what that tells us? It tells us that joy is a gift. Joy is a gift. You don't earn it. You don't manufacture it. I think that's something we've been learning in the book of Ecclesiastes. Joy is something to be received, not something for you to, to earn or manufacture on your own. And so without the plant, when the sun comes up, um, just like the worm attacked the plant, the sun attacks Jonah's head. I mean, it's a funny picture, really. The sun is doing battle. It's, it has, it's doing warfare with Jonah's head, right? I don't know about you, but I picture Jonah being bald for some reason. Uh, maybe that's because the Apostle Paul was bald. And I see the sun just beating down on Jonah's head. Uh, maybe he's not bald. He's, maybe he's just sitting out up there. But the sun is beating on him. And you know what that's like when you don't have a, a hat on, uh, midday, blazing sun, right? Uh, Jonah at this point is exhausted. He's at the point of exhaustion, and he's about to faint. 
Uh, but given how Jonah has acted so far, it's not, it's not a surprise that he repeats his irrational request to die. Because he's angry with God again. That first, God would forgive his enemies, and now that God would take away this plant that he so cared about. So he says again, just let me die already, God. Just let me die. I'm about to pass, uh, pass out anyways. Just let me die. And so God repeats himself too. He says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry for this plant? Right? But this time, Jonah doesn't walk away. He responds to God. He says, it's good for me to be angry. Angry enough to die. That should really be an exclamation mark right there. It's an outburst. Dang right I'm angry, Lord. Right? I mean, with the little energy he has left, Jonah is lashing out. But for the first time, he's admitting that he's angry. But him admitting his ang- anger is really the first step to going somewhere with God. He's admitting his anger. In the last two verses, God ramps up the lesson. Uh, God points out what Jonah couldn't see. Like Jonah cared for this plant, but he didn't bring it into existence. He didn't even make it grow. It wasn't a product of his hard work. Yet, Jonah greatly pitied this plant. It's not that Jonah shouldn't have cared for this plant, right? It's okay to care about a plant. But the point is, his pity is far too small. Jonah's pity is too small. And God is about to point that out to him. Um, So the book of Jonah ends with a profound question. Uh, God basically says, Jonah, is it okay with you if I pity Nineveh, that I show compassion to them? I mean, you pitied this thing that sprouted one day and then withered the next. Shouldn't I pity what's greater than that? Those 120,000 men in Nineveh that don't know their right from their left hand? Shouldn't I pity them and their cows too? Right? You pitied the plant. Why can't I pity all these people? Do you see what God is doing in this passage? Isn't God showing Jonah the very thing that Jonah complains about? Now listen again to Jonah's complaint. I knew, I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah can't see that he needs that grace just as much as his enemies. Why? (laughs) Because Jonah thinks everyone else is the problem. But who's actually been the problem throughout the story? Is it the sailors? The Ninevites? No, the problem all along has been Jonah. But he's too blind to see that. But that's what sin does to us. I like how Tim Keller puts it. Your sins appear smaller than they are to you. For Jonah, his own sin have all but disappeared. As someone said... Jonah doesn't spell sin with I in the middle of it. 
I think we all know someone like Jonah. Uh, you know a professional critic, someone who's always criticizing people, someone who always has a wagging finger. Nothing is ever good enough for that person because others are always the problem. It's never them. But let me ask you this question this morning. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? If it does, I want you to chew on this quote for a little while because uh, I found it to be really challenging. And it's from uh, St. Maximus the Confessor. Is that a cool name? He says this, He who busies himself with the sins of others or judges his brother on suspicion has not yet begun to repent or to examine himself so as to discover his own sins. We need to take a, a hard look at ourselves before we start pointing fingers. You know, 2,000 years ago, there came a faithful Jewish man who not only loved and pitied Israel, I mean, it makes perfect sense that he would, he was a Jewish man. He loved his own. But he also pitied the nations, the sojourners, the Gentiles that Jonah had no pity for. He welcomed them. He welcomed us. You see, Jesus set up his booth among us and he welcomed his enemies. He set up his booth not outside of us, but in the midst of us. Uh, John, in his gospel, puts it like this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. He tabernacled with needy sinners. He set up His booth with His enemies, enemies like you and like me. And at the cross, Jesus has reconciled enemies. The cross is the place where enemies can become friends, even family. Because it's the place where God's pity is most clearly seen. We who are far off, we who were once enemies, are now brought near into the household of God. Isn't that good news? What Jesus has done for us to bring us to himself. Let me just close with this reflection. And I think it's a challenging one. And it's this idea that God uses our enemies for our blessing. What in the world, right? How can our enemies be a blessing to us? The truth is, there are certain kinds of blessings that, can, that you can't have apart from your enemies. And I'm not just talking about people uh, on your official hate list, your black list or whatever. But people we consider actual, um, or people we consider actual enemies. But I'm also talking about people we find difficult. People who have toxic personalities. People we can't get along with. You know, our enemies, difficult people. They're there to get us to see grace in a deeper way. And this is why Jesus tells us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because they remind us that we need grace just as much as they do. They help humble us 
They point out things about us that we don't like about ourselves. I think we villainize people too often, right? I mean, just practice this. When you go home, look at one person you consider an enemy. List out the things that you don't like about them. And then ask yourself, do I ever do those things? I think if you just reflect on that a little bit, you'll see that you need just as much grace as they do. And so there's this table set before us this morning. And you know something? God doesn't set it in a remote place, high up on a mountain, away from our enemies, away from people we dislike. No, uh, He puts it in the midst of them. The psalmist in Psalm 23 puts it this way, You, O Lord, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You see, this table is set in the midst of our enemies to strip us of all of our pride and to disarm us of our religious snobbery and to remind us of God's lavish grace for us in Jesus Christ who shed His blood and His body was broken for us. We who were once enemies are welcome into His table. Amen. I'd like to invite Pastor Brett and elders to come and serve us this, this table for enemies. And please join me in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you for this time in your word and at your table. We thank you for the reminder of how absurd our anger can be and how plenteous your pity can be in our times of need. And Father, we are always needy. We ask that you would help us to confess the foolishness of our pride, our sin, and our anger, that it would no longer blind us, but that we would see clearly and with compassionate eyes that we would be like Abraham, who prays for the cities about to be destroyed, that they might turn and come to you. Grant us to see with your own eyes of pity, to love your mercy, and to delight that you are a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. For that is our hope, that is our comfort, that is our salvation. Amen.